Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Now, Alice, the one with the uh, with the the information here. <laughs> it's like dark matter. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ellen Nelson and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we're going to talk about the. Uh, stimulus plan that is working its way into Congress. Um, we uh, interviewed Molly Reynolds last week to tell us about the intricacies of the budget reconciliation process, uh, but that was theory. We are now seeing practice. Ella, like, can you fill us in? Like, what, what, where are they at in this process right now? What is, what is happening? There's $1.9 trillion and a bunch of like sub plans are getting written. Yeah. So right now, basically what's happening is um, House Democrats actually released their version of Biden's plan yesterday. And it's it already looks slightly different than the original plan. Um, so basically, uh, while the Senate is tied up with Donald Trump's second impeachment this week, um, House Democrats are sort of moving forward with the budget reconciliation process on their side after we had a bunch of stuff happen last week with Votorama in the Senate, which is the this very long amendments process um, and basically kind of kicking off the budget reconciliation process um, by which Democrats could potentially pass Biden's COVID relief plan by a simple majority vote. So 51 votes in the Senate overriding the filibuster. And so how how does House Democrats blueprint uh, vary from what Biden set out? It seemed like there was a lot of back and forth about the $1,400 checks, and then they landed about where they started? Yeah. I mean, so basically, um, yeah, as you said, like the $1,400 checks have kind of been the biggest essentially hang up here, um, whether or not to, it it hasn't been a debate so much over the amount of the checks. Biden has been very, um, you know, strident in that he wants to keep it at $1,400 because that completes a campaign promise that he made in the Georgia runoffs to get people $2,000 stimulus checks and that $2,000 equals out when you do the $1,400 that they're working on now plus the $600 that many Americans already received um, with the December stimulus bill. So Biden doesn't really want to cut down the number on the checks, but what is being sort of Uh, negotiated and talked about more is potentially who gets these checks and if if it should be folks that are making um, $75,000 a year, which was in Biden's original plan, um, or as congressional Republicans have proposed, lowering it down to folks who make, uh, say, $50,000 a year. So the House Democrats' uh, plan basically tried to finagle it in a way that it still kept 
the income cap at $75,000 and and still had the $1,400 checks, but they are are now proposing phasing some of the UI benefits out um, earlier. So they're kind of finagling the numbers in, in other ways to kind of get the same results, essentially. Can you talk a little bit about like what Democrats kind of theory of the politics involved here is? Because it does seem that to a certain extent, the kind of Democratic mainstream commentariat took away from the 2020 stimulus debates that like, it was good to just give everybody checks to put the president's name on them, like that was really good politics. And so uh, you can clearly see the through line from that to Biden's promise in the Georgia runoffs. And now it seems like they're trying to, you know, there's because of, you know, various political exigencies that they feel there is one question of like, do you break the promise if that check is, you know, less than $1,400 for anybody? Or do you break that promise if it's less than $1,400 for everybody? And it seems like Democrats have persuaded themselves that they would be breaking a promise if they lowered the baseline number, but not if they, that they're avoiding whatever potential pitfalls are there by phasing it out. Is that something that they've really articulated or thought through? Or is this kind of them trying to square a circle that was created by this campaign promise? Well, I think the the $600 checks themselves phased out, right? So then the the idea, I think, is to make sure, I think the current thinking is to make sure that everybody who got $600 gets bumped up to $2,000 right? But with 600, you had actually a very gradual phase down because there's not that much to phase. And with 1400, you can tamp up the phase down percentage and still sort of deliver on the on the promise. I mean, obviously the subtext here is that Democrats um, got behind a campaign promise that I think their like wonk class does not believe in. And, and also Democrats like care more about what people say about them. And I think have felt pressure to try to reconcile the promise with like what op-ed writers think is important, you know. And there's a few people like out there rallying for 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 the checks. But like we saw, right, there was this sort of backlash over the weekend where Larry Summers and some other people in the in the center left verse were just saying that 1.9 trillion dollars is too much money overall. And I think you know, with a particular emphasis on things like checks going to everyone, uh, because nobody wants to say like, well, we shouldn't invest money in vaccinating people, right? But it's a question of like, how much stimulating does the economy actually need? Seems like it's it's been the debate. Uh, And what's, what's interesting, Ella, right, is there doesn't seem to be contention on the Hill about the total size of, of the offering, right? They are like, they're, they're quibbling over details. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like it, it is it is fascinating to me. I've been talking to a lot of former Obama officials in the last week, including um, Larry Summers before he he wrote that op ed. And I think that, you know, I mean, Democrats just have a very different Senate caucus to deal with than they did in the Obama era. You know, you have Joe Manchin as sort of the most conservative Senate Democrat um, and, and Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly from Arizona are certainly talked about along those lines, too. But Joe Manchin fundamentally you know, as the most conservative person is one person still. And in 2009, when Obama's administration was trying to present this this stimulus, you know, they didn't even 
dare go above 1 trillion. They they knew that they could not get that passed because not only, you know, did they have to contend with Republican votes, but there were just many more conservative Democrats in in the Senate who didn't want to budge over that number. And so Matt, you're right. Like it's we're kind of quibbling around the edges here on, you know, what might get trimmed here or there, but it's Biden is basically, you know, he's not talking about cutting his plan in half or or anything like that. Like he he met with Republicans including Senator Susan and Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, who had proposed this $600 billion counter offer from kind of the moderate wing of the Senate GOP. And Biden met with them for two hours and talked to them, but basically made it clear at the end of the meeting that he was not interested in going down to $600 billion. And, and yeah, I, I think that for the most part, the concerns of people like Larry Summers aren't held by the vast majority of people in Biden's administration and on his economic team. I think it's worth kind of underlining that because it's something that was never super well articulated in the pre-Trump era. And then during the Trump era, just like wasn't actually true just because Donald Trump was listening to people outside his White House as often as he was listening to people on the inside, if not more so. Like the tactic of I'm going to you know, publish an op-ed about how this entire thinking is wrong is not generally what you do if you have the ear of the White House and the Hill, right? It's something of an attempt to like, to force a debate from the outside, which isn't to say that like, no one would pick up Larry Summers calls on the Hill. It is, it's just to say that like, it was clear by the way that he went about it, that that is a view that was not necessarily being expressed you know, very among the people who were actually making the decisions. And that's then been validated by the fact that like Democrats plan does not in fact reflect the kind of Larry Summers school of concerns. But, you know, that does kind of, it means certain things for how bills become law though, right? Because if you don't have that, if the public debate that's happening reflects the people who aren't in the room, you don't necessarily have a sense of what the divides in the room actually are, much less the time to have those out publicly. And the reconciliation process, as I understand it, kind of scrambles that further by like providing a further constraint on how much a bill could even change because of because it has to continue to fit the reconciliation requirements throughout the process. So like, how do you see this playing out in terms of, you know, how much there is open debate over this bill versus the kind of default in Congress right now, which is, you know, you present various versions and whichever one you think has the votes, you move to the floor as quickly as possible. Well, I mean, some of the interesting things that I thought the the, the piece, the part of of Larry Summers' op-ed and part of what he and I had talked about before he wrote it was um, that that I think is sort of getting a little bit missed is that that I think is actually interesting is the question not so much of like are we going to overheat the economy and you know risk inflation but also what does this mean for Joe Biden's political capital um, when he wants to come back later this month and you know ask. Congress to work with him on potentially a you know up to four trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and I mean that that because basically we have to think about Biden's COVID 
relief plan in in two parts. Like right now he has this relief plan that is essentially, you know, just just sort of building on what we have seen in the CARES Act and and the, you know, lesser 900 billion dollar bill that was passed in December. It's it's a lot of the same stuff. You know, there's there's rapid deployment of vaccines, but it's unemployment insurance, it's stimulus checks, it's stuff that isn't necessarily new territory. But you know, later this month he in a joint session um, of Congress, which we don't know exactly when it's going to happen yet, is going to um, introduce the second bigger, potentially, plank of this plan, which is his Build Back Better agenda. And that is going to be his infrastructure plan, ostensibly his climate and his jobs plan wrapped into one. Um, It could, you know, have stuff on childcare. It's going to be it's going to be massive. And Larry Summers' argument, and I do think this is maybe a little bit more shared by some folks that I talked to is this fear that Biden, by by going too too big, quote unquote, by by asking for and sticking to this $1.9 trillion number, and you know, maybe it shrinks down to 1.6 or or whatever, but it's still very large, that Biden is then, you know, risking kind of spending his political capital on this first thing before he gets to arguably his signature piece of his agenda. Yeah, see, I think that's super important because I think this has gotten I, I've been participating in in macro economic debates, you know, uh, on the Internet for, for many, many years. And people are sort of continuing with that. And I think I think you can make a strong case for a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus. You say, you know, a few hundred billion of this is like not really stimulus at all. It's directly addressing public health. Some of this is relief of urgent needs. The CBO's um, output gap estimate is, I think, almost certainly too low. They say we were overheating all throughout 2018 and 2019, uh, which which isn't true. Um, so you you make the case for the 1.9 trillion, but then once I'm done writing that case for the 1.9 trillion, I struggle to come up with a case for the hypothetical second plan, right? And Summers's point, which is is like not an economics point at all, right? This is Larry Summers, famous economist, sort of freelancing as a congressional analyst, saying that in his opinion, doing a smaller bill would let you then say, okay, now I want this other plan. Um, whereas Biden's thinking... I don't know exactly what Biden's thinking is. The thinking seems to be that they're going to do this reconciliation bill on a party line vote. They're going to make it as big as they possibly can. That's going to be a win. And then getting a huge win is going to set them up to do another thing. And I have a hard time making sense of who's right and who isn't, because we don't really know what the other thing is, right? Like, I I mean, I, I remember... You know, when when they were briefing on this and we were like, well, what's up with the infrastructure plan? And they said, well, you'll know by the joint session of Congress. And we said, well, when's the joint session of Congress? And they were like, <laughs> sometime, right? <laughs> yeah. And I've been asked, like, I've, I've been talking to senators and I have, you know, basically the message that I've been getting from folks when I ask, like, have you heard, had any outreach from the White House on Biden's infrastructure plan is not yet. Like, you know, they they say they're focused on the COVID relief package first. Right. Um, but obviously, like they have to be writing this plan in the background because it's going to be a huge plan. <laughs> I mean, do I? I don't know, right? I mean, this <laughs> is because I think you get into conversations in Washington these days about the COVID relief plan that 
the hypothetical other plan seems to fall out of, right? Like, I feel like most of the debate about Summers' op-ed has, like, completely ignored, like, his stated concern about this other plan. It makes me wonder if it's, like, real at all, right? Like, is anybody working on the hypothetical other plan? I mean, we certainly have direct recent experience of a president who frequently talks about his desire to do an infrastructure plan, but doesn't <laughs> actually develop one. So, I mean, like, somewhat less controversially, I was going to bring up that, like, as far as follow through on proposals for Congress is concerned, we still haven't actually had the text of the immigration bill that they said they introduced on day one introduced. Right. The day, right. The day one immigration bill didn't happen. Everyone's moved on. Um, infrastructure week could become a bipartisan phenomenon. I mean, I don't know. But, like, but who, like, who's the, the, writing this bill? My question about, I mean, that's definitely one question that plays into my kind of earlier concern about like how the Hill is thinking about how long it takes, like how how much you debate a bill out in the open, right? Like who's developing the bill ha- is going to have a big influence on like, is this another, you know, Pelosi, Schumer, White House thing? Or are they actually going to do the, oh yes, we're going to have like selected members of Congress introduce it and like they'll own it and then, you know, do kind of coalitional work to get it done. The question of, you know, is Larry Summers right about the politics of this leads me back to what Ella was saying earlier about this being a fundamentally different Democratic caucus in Congress than the one Larry Summers was dealing with in the first term of the Obama administration. And like any question about White House congressional relations that assumes the argument of if you do policy X, it will be more politically popular than if you do policy Y and will like give you more leeway in future votes is like, which votes are we talking about here? Who are the people who, you know, if Larry Summers is correct, would be willing to vote for a smaller than $1.9 billion stimulus or COVID package, and then be willing to vote for a bigger infrastructure deal? Or like, conversely, who are the people who are going to be lost if you go more aggressively versus like, what is the theory of the case for there is absolutely no relationship between the size of this package and the size of the next package? Like, I think I understand that latter case. I think the latter case is like, you just assume a maximally partisan Congress at this point. And as long as you can keep your caucus in line, mostly you can get your, you know, like you can get the things you need. I don't know how that works for a 60 vote bill as opposed to a 50 vote one. But, you know, I feel like any argument about the politics of when we're talking about will it pass Congress needs to talk about Who are we at risk of losing if we do this? I mean, if 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 the concern is that we're at risk of losing Joe Manchin, I don't think I think it's safe to say that Biden is not risking losing Joe Manchin on infrastructure like Joe Manchin is raring to go on infrastructure. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I, I, I had talked to him about this a few weeks ago in the hallways. And, you know, he was he he had gone on. Uh, a local television station in West Virginia and basically said, you know, let's do anywhere from $2 trillion to $4 trillion on infrastructure. Um, and I asked him about that. And and he basically said, you know, indirectly referenced the 2017 GOP tax bill and said, look, we've been spending, you know, essentially trillions of dollars adding to the deficit for for nothing, for, you know, giving tax breaks to corporations. Why not, you know, let's let's do something along the lines of FDR Eisenhower. And, you know, let's like, you know, one of the things that Democrats and Republicans both really want to do in addition to just like roads and bridges and stuff is like 
rural broadband and, you know, 5G internet in rural areas. Like that is something that would be a big bipartisan win. And that's something that's really high up in, in Biden's, you know, at least the plan that he wrote in the campaign. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, again, I think that th- there could be some bipartisan consensus, but I think the thing that we're struggling with both in the COVID package and also maybe not struggling with, but the, you know, the question of the size that is going to pop up again in the infrastructure bill because Republicans are interested in working on infrastructure. I don't necessarily think they're interested in a $4 trillion infrastructure plan. Yeah. I mean, it's well, okay. I, I Let's steer. I, I want to steer back to what's what's in the legislation that's that's actually before us, um, since we can we can talk about that in a sort of clearer way. Um, so I, I think the sort of checks have gotten the most kind of hype on the internet, but the unemployment insurance is probably the most, I think, like substantively important thing uh, because those benefits are set to run out pretty soon. People keep saying they should create some kind of automatic triggers around unemployment insurance so we don't have this cliff over and over again, but it now looks like they're not going to do that, and it's just it's just going to set to expire at the end of the summer. Yeah, the difference, so the main difference, Biden's plan had proposed um, that stimulus benefits go until September, and the main difference between that and the House Democrats bill is that theirs goes through August, essentially, which, you know, is kind of setting up a fight. Some some Senate Democrats are not happy about that, but yeah. Well, what do they accomplish with that extra, I guess, one month fewer? Yeah, I think it kind of trims some proverbial fat here adds it into, you know, the stimulus checks or wherever else that they kind of want to direct more towards. Huh. Okay. And then and then they also have this one year version of a child allowance policy, um, which is something I mean, I know Vox has been covering child allowance for for years. It's uh it's in my book. Um this is like an idea to address child poverty by giving money on a monthly basis to all parents of, of young kids, but they just kind of like snuck a one-year version into the stimulus plan, um, which would be a big deal for one year. But then I guess with the assumption being that once it's in there, it'll it'll sort of get rolled into um Congress does these fights every year about what people call the tax extenders, where you make things go out longer. And so I guess the tax credit could be rolled into that. I mean, this seems like a a procedural version of the more common political argument that like the biggest problem is setting up the benefit. Once the benefit is in place, you've created a constituency to perpetuate it. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I mean, I think that's the, the idea. I mean, people do this in reconciliation bills all the time. I guess we haven't really seen like a stimulus bill that's also a reconciliation bill in a while. Like we've we've had reconciliation bills. We've had a bunch of covid emergency bills and and we had the 2009 stimulus. uh, But it's being mashed up in a way that's a little bit unusual. I think the last thing that I want to talk about was that the House Democrats put some stuff in. Uh, about changing Obamacare uh, to, I guess, make the subsidies more generous, um, which is, as a now Obamacare user, I'm, I'm very excited about this, um, which was not in Biden's ask for the stimulus, but it was in Biden's healthcare proposal. So, I mean, I don't know. That's just like a sort of an interesting 
extra change in there. There's like a lot more going on than, than just the stimulus. Um, we should take a break and then um, pivot back. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Ella, something that I kind of wanted to ask, uh, and, you know, this can speak to the COVID relief package proposal in general, or just kind of what you're seeing in the early weeks of this Congress. Where are these ideas coming from among Hill Democrats? Like, who are the members or caucuses who appear to be kind of doing the work of coming up with you know, policy proposals or, you know, trying to broaden or narrow the Biden administration's asks. Yeah, I can talk about that. It's basically like Ron Wyden on Senate finance and then Ways and Means chair, uh, House Ways and Means chair Richard Neal, and then like Bernie's on budget. So and so it's mostly coming through committee leadership is like there isn't kind of any sort of like insurgent, like, you know, people coming up with brilliant ideas that get folded in. Um, I think it's mostly going through leadership, although we can like there's also sort of the dynamic of like House progressives having, you know, potentially like a really powerful block because the House Democratic majority is so small and there's just more of them. So that is like also like Congressional Progressive Caucus, like AOC wing is also one to watch as well. It's really interesting how different this sort of dynamic is than the 2009 kind of thing. I mean, Democrats see him very firmly convinced that they will be rewarded by the electorate for having a really, really aggressive fiscal plan. Um, Although what's interesting is that they are being so aggressive with it, right? This is all 2021 money. So the election is actually in 2022. It's an interesting nuance. Like I, I agree with the philosophy 
of like, you should do an aggressive fiscal plan, but the literal politics to me doesn't quite play out, I think, exactly the way they seem to be thinking that it will. Uh, because, you know, there's going to be this huge surge of spending. People will get checks like in March. Uh, state governments that are facing budget holes will be made whole. A number of states don't have big budget gaps this year, so they'll just get extra money that their governors can, you know, and, and legislators can do whatever with. There will be generous unemployment through August or September, uh, money for, for virus stuff. But then like in 2022, when Democrats are running for re-election, none of that's going to be the case. Um, now, if like the virus is conquered and we're at full employment and everyone's like, man, <laughs> it really sucked when Trump was president, you know, like that may work for them anyway. But it's like it's it's a little bit less literal. Right. Like there was this kind of dynamic to an extent in 2020 of like Papa Trump was like handing out checks and boosting people's unemployment benefits and putting all these emergency measures in place. And that's like not actually what Democrats are doing here in a way that. I think it's just like a little contrary to their their narrative about themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like not to keep coming back to this, but I think the question that you raise about 2022 is, again, comes back to the question of like, what is Biden able to then do next? And, mm -hmm. you know, how how much of a mark can he have through, you know, a green jobs bill, an infrastructure bill, you know, kind of remaking the American economy towards clean energy um, but but yeah, I, I think that that is that is a very uh, real question, and and again goes into you know <laughs> this question of political right. capital. <laughs> well, and that's why I feel like it's like every day in the briefing room, like poor Jem Saki gets this question of like Biden said he would be unifying, but you're still writing this bill, and everyone's like a little tired with it, and their answer is always like, well, it's important to address the coronavirus uh, crisis, which. Like, it seems like by all the polls, people agree with that. Like, that's fine. It's on this hypothetical next step that I think that question becomes more apt. Because it's like you were saying, Ella, like, Republicans have some level of interest in an infrastructure bill. The FAST Act passed in 2015. That was a bipartisan bill. Uh, people don't like remember the bipartisan legislating that happened in 2015. But that's because the strategy Obama took was to not be very vocal about it, let the committee chairs and ranking members work stuff out on their own. Um, he signed it, but he didn't make it like, this is Obama's signature transportation bill, right? And so that to me, it seems like will be a real choice Biden faces. Like, does he try to rev up the reconciliation engine again, do a giant bill, or does he try to really make good on the, like the other promise of Bidenism, which is like to be a more low key president and, and do things in a, in a bipartisan way. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I'm hearing both things simultaneously. Yeah. I, I sort of feel like Biden's like dual promises, as you said, sort of the bipartisanship and unity promise, or maybe not. I, I, the unity word, irks me. <laughs> but the bipartisan <laughs> promise, I think, runs headlong into this, you know, New Deal 2.0 promise. And I mean, basically, like Chuck Schumer has already said that they 
would potentially pursue reconciliation for the infrastructure bill. Like that is already out in the ether. That is, mm-hmm. and and I think it's sort of going to be the same thing where it's like, let's see what we can get Republicans on. Like maybe, you know, maybe it will be broadband, you know, maybe, you know, increased funding for, for states and roads and bridges, whatever. But, you know, again, ultimately it is this size question. And I think that Biden cares more about his legacy sort of being this FDR-esque president than being somebody who got to work with Senate Republicans, because even as much as he's messaging that, like he remembers from the Obama administration, how tough it was to work with Senate Republicans. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, I, I do think that there is kind of a, you know, I, I look forward to this debate getting granular enough that we can start talking about like, who are the gettable Republicans? And like, what are they demanding? Because in the absence of that, you end up kind of defaulting to like, the people who make positive sounding mouth noises, which aren't always, you know, there are always people who are happy with a hypothetical bipartisan deal and looking for reasons to walk away from any actual bipartisan deal. And so I look, you know, I I think that we can't really talk about what the proper policy is for the politics until we actually get closer to this being legislation. But it does seem to me that I mean, Ella, I guess this this kind of runs into a question for me, because like, I get what you're saying about Biden seeing his legacy as being more FDR style. But like, everything that I've heard from people who are more experienced campaign reporters than I, which is to say experienced campaign reporters at all, is that like, Biden is an institutionalist and was really, really shaped by his time in the Senate and respects the Senate as an institution. Like, we kept hearing during the 2020 campaign that the reason Biden wouldn't have the problems in his relationship with the Hill that Obama did wasn't because Biden had realized that Mitch McConnell couldn't be trusted, but because Biden, unlike Obama, already had the relationships on the Hill that he could, like, make that work. Not necessarily with Mitch McConnell per se, but with, you know, Democrats and with the Republicans with whom he, you know, kind of had good working relationships. So, is your sense that like the Biden White House, that they are less invested in that kind of institutionalist mindset than they might have said they were during the campaign or even than they might have been during the campaign? Yeah, I sort of feel like that is in that this idea of, you know, that Joe Biden can magically repair the Senate is kind of a mirage. <laughs> like, I, I, I do like I understand that, you know, that he is certainly different from Obama. He has these longstanding relationships. I mean, there are a lot of questions of like, is Biden's legislative team going to negotiate with Susan Collins or is Biden himself going to negotiate with Susan Collins? And it seems to be the latter from what we've seen so far. You know, Biden, Biden, this this idea that he has sort of hearkened back to of like this a Senate that works and and bipartisanship and you know all of this this stuff. I don't I think that he understands that that is a fundamentally different Senate than what we're dealing with today. And I also do think that as far as the politics of this and sort of you know whatever case he's going to be making for 2022 midterms or potentially, you know, I I don't know if he's going to run for president again in 2024, but I think that he kind of wants to set Democrats up with a different argument than, you know, sort of this this incremental change. And, um, you know, I think that he wants people to see economic relief and, you know, very, very strong economic growth right away. And that, you know, a lot of this stuff in at least in the plans that he's put forward as president is sort of targeted to, you know, some of these these areas that that Trump did very well and, you know, sort of like the Rust Belt's. Ohio's and Pennsylvania's and and stuff like that. And that's, you know, that a lot of the discussion that 
he is having right now is like, you know, with union heads on, you know, what happens to to coal jobs or gas jobs or oil jobs. And, and that is that is sort of the meat of what he wants to do. And I sort of think that that supersedes that's more important to him than restoring the Senate to its old bipartisan ways, because I just think that that is a <laughs> more difficult task almost. One thing I will say on behalf of bipartisanship is that I've been a little surprised by how um, how many Republican votes Biden's cabinet nominees have been getting. Ali Mayorkas went through with, I think, 56 total votes, but he's the, the slimmest majority of anybody who's been out there. You've seen people with 70 uh, plus, plus votes cruising through. It turned out that there wasn't a big difficulty getting the waiver uh, for, for Defense Secretary Austin. Um, it turned out that these controversies around West exec advisors that seemed like they might be sticking to a number of Biden's national security nominees is that, you know, it was the kind of thing where like, had Republicans chosen to make hay out of that, they could have, but they clearly made a decision on a leadership level to not do that. Like some members voted no, some criticisms were made, but there was no serious effort to like, slow down uh, Tony Blinken's confirmation and really rake him over the coals on, on that kind of stuff. And it at least to me raises the possibility that if you tee up a reconciliation order around infrastructure, that you say to Republicans, look, this infrastructure train is leaving the station, so to speak, you're not going to block it, right? It's like when the possibility of blocking something is on the table, I think it's very tempting. Like, I don't think there's any way some of these people who've gotten over 60 votes would have been confirmed if Biden needed 60 votes to confirm them, right? If 41 Republican senators could block a Biden cabinet nominee, I think it would be really tempting to do it. But if you know you can't block them, it's like certain members like to cast ineffectual no votes. Like, you know, Josh Hawley is trying to make a point the way Kirsten Gillibrand did uh, in, in Trump's first year. But others don't. They're like, okay, I'm going to vote for a bunch of these guys. So then when I vote no, I can like be clear uh, about my, my statement. And you can imagine doing that on infrastructure, right? Saying to people, look, if there is something you are interested in, you know, like airports in Missouri or broadband in Alaska, like get on the bus, you know, because we're spending $2 trillion and nobody knows what the plan is. And I don't know, like that that is not how Obama era legislating worked. It's, I think, what Rahm Emanuel thought was going to happen with the first stimulus bill, and then it didn't. But part of the issue there was that they had, they almost had 60 Democratic senators, but they didn't quite. So Republicans had the ability to, to block it. The margins are super thin for congressional Democrats now, but they do, they, they have the majority, right? I mean, unlike on uh, voting rights and other stuff, these purely spending measures, like they can pass and it maybe brings Republicans to the table. It's really fascinating because I feel like the like being so close to the 60 votes in the Obama era almost like ended up being like hurting them more than it helped them. Like I just feel like now the prevailing idea is just like, all right, like we'll just we're just going to do it like. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, exactly. I 
I think the converse of this, and I, I'm sure it's too early to tell on this, because if we don't know what's in the package, we don't know what the kind of marginal stakes of, you know, deal making with Republicans or not are. But something I think to look out for is, you know, unlike the COVID relief bill, the infrastructure bill is supposed to be satisfying a bunch of different constituent groups within the Democratic establishment and base who have different legislative priorities than just let's pump a bunch of money into the economy. Not that like, you know, not, not that they necessarily oppose that, but like, if we're talking about using it to do, you know, minimum wage and to trans and green jobs and that kind of thing, there are various, you know, constituencies that if their particular preferred part of the proposal got stripped out, would have reason to be very upset. And so if Republicans do come to the table, I think something to watch is, are you going to see some progressive groups going, well, but you don't have to strip, you know, you don't have to work with Republicans and settle for something less than what we actually want. You could just go it alone and, you know, get everything that we want and not have to worry that we're sacrificing our climate future just to get a couple of Republicans on board. Yeah, I think you're already seeing that with, you know, the the COVID relief bill right now, like like the $15 minimum wage and sort of the question of of if it can actually go through with budget reconciliation or if it has to be um, stripped out of the final bill. But yeah, I, I, I that is absolutely going to be a, a dynamic. And it's not just going to be like to to part of our conversation earlier. It's not just going to be activist groups. It's also going to be very progressive members of the House, like right. uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jamal Bowman, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, like the 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 so-called squad has gotten bigger and the House Democratic majority has gotten smaller. So therefore, you know, the, the very progressive wing of the Democratic Party ha- holds power in the same way that Joe Manchin holds power in the Senate. So, I mean, yeah, there there is definitely this is this is a major tension to watch for. There's also the fact that, you know, Schumer could potentially face a primary challenger in 2022 when he's up for re-election. And so the very progressive New York City activist groups have real sway here. I mean, I think the other question is, like, especially on the Senate side, there are members of the Senate who don't consider themselves particular, like who aren't like on the left wing of the party, but who have gotten very invested in climate hawkishness. And so depending on what the things that are on the chopping block are, you know, if Republicans decide that the thing they really want to aim for is they don't want to spend a ton of money on, you know, retooling for a renewable energy economy, that you could see, you know, people who have kind of spent a lot of energy on being climate hawks say, I'm sorry, I can't get on board with this. Like climate is a weird one in Congress because different people have different definitions in their minds of like what it means to be hawkish on on climate change and you know this bipartisan energy bill happened last december that had a lot on climate um it was bipartisan because you know it involved significant concessions to lisa murkowski and and other republicans Uh, but if you look at like the content of what those concessions were it's stuff that some people would say is climate hawkish. Like it's money for carbon sequestration. It's money for direct air capture. It's money for nuclear. 
But then like a different set of environmental groups says that that stuff is bad. Like not that the bill was bad, but that those were concessions to the right because they were concessions to the sort of continued existence of natural gas extraction in the United States. And there's a there's just like a disagreement, right, as to like is maximum climate hawkishness, maximum hostility to fossil fuel extraction, in which case it's worth like not giving an inch to the idea that this industry might continue to exist, or is maximum climate hawkishness like doing as much as you can on all fronts, right? And I think uh, a lot of the senators I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying exactly that they haven't made up their minds, but it's like it's always convenient in politics to sort of have it both ways, right? To on the one hand tell activist groups that you agree with them that like the 45Q tax subsidy for carbon capture projects is terrible, but like then vote for the bill because it's a compromise. And so, I mean, I think that becomes the the question if you go into climate mode, right? Because there's so many things that are like a total non-starter in West Virginia and in Montana. I mean, not to make everything about Joe Manchin, um, but like states that have fossil fuel extraction industries, I think even New Mexico, you know, like Ben Ray Lujan is going to be looking at his election results in November, which wound up being a lot weaker than I think he was anticipating as Latino voters shifted to the right and is going to be seeing that, you know, he's been repping a very blue house district, but now he's statewide. They have an oil and gas industry in the Eastern part of New Mexico. And like, you know, where's he on that? Right. So you like that gets tricky, right? Just inside the democratic caucus. And if you can sell people on the idea that like clean energy infrastructure doesn't mean shutting down every extraction project. That opens up a lot of doors. But that's where, Ella, what you were saying about the the prospect of a sort of left-wing freedom caucus comes in. Because uh, those are the members who are completely not on board for that kind of thing. I was actually just talking to a woman, Rihanna Gunwright, this morning, who is one of the architects of the Green New Deal, and asking her just sort of about you know what she thinks about what Biden has put forward so far for his climate and jobs plan and and basically like how closely that matches up with the Green New Deal. And she said that one of the things that she is watching for is is exactly what you're talking about, is like how aggressive does the Biden administration go on basically shutting down, you know, saying that we are moving away from fossil fuels, we're phasing out fossil fuels. What is the stand that they take on, you know, oil and gas and coal versus just being like, and here are all of these great new green jobs we can create, which sort of seems to be like the message that they're leaning into thus far. And I think that a lot of progressive groups are just sort of looking to see like how hard does Biden actually bring the hammer down on oil and gas or or does he not you know and and yeah that and that that dynamic i think has very real implications for how much support a potential bill could get in congress where a lot of these interests have representation i think we should probably wrap this up here take another break we're going to turn to the to the white paper but ella has more uh, reporting to do uh, with, with, with lawmakers and, and will not be joining us there. But thank you so much uh, for enlightening us on what's happening uh, up here on Congress and, and in the administration. We will um, 
be interested to see what happens and hopefully have you back uh, because this is, it's a very political, I mean, the weeds, we are all about policy, uh, but this is very much about what policies can actually happen politically. Um, so thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, our white paper today, Hungry for Success, Snap Timing, High Stakes Exam Performance, and College Attendance uh, by Timothy Bond, Jillian Carr, Annalisa Packham, and Jonathan Smith. Um, this looks at the way the SNAP or, or food stamps program works, which is that it, it disperses benefits on a monthly cycle. Uh, we know that people who are low income, um, you know, tend to not be able to fully smooth their, their consumption. They are living paycheck to paycheck, as we say, um, and near the end of a benefit cycle, start, you know, running out of, of money or cash like nutrition assistance. Um, and so they show they have a, um, individual score data from a large national college admissions exam, uh, of which there are only two. So it's not, not that well anonymized. Um, they look at people's test scores, based on whether it's in the sort of front half or back half of the SNAP cycle. And they show lower scores in the back half of the of the cycle and concurrently lower probability of attending a four-year college uh, for low-income high school students. So, you know, I mean, I, I think the intended takeaway is when people are hungry, it is hard for them to do well on tests and that this has a meaningful impact, um, you know, not just directly on their college attendance, but probably on how we should think about the relationship between sort of poverty policy and broader life outcomes, uh, because, I don't know, like taking a high stakes college entrance exam just happens to be a sort of high profile example of how sometimes in life it's important to be able to like do demanding cognitive tasks. There definitely are. Uh, there are a whole lot of, of questions in that kind of broader normative thing you mentioned, but I do want to kind of look, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the specific effect that this paper is showing, because on the one hand, it's potentially a little bit it like the effect size doesn't actually seem that big. They're essentially finding a five point swing in SAT score, which is not a huge swing on the SAT. And so it's, you know, it's a little bit tricky to really credit that what we're looking at is a substantial number of people who would have gotten into a four year college, but for the fact that they scored five points lower on the SAT than they otherwise would. On the other hand, it's possible that this is a little bit understated as an effect, because the way they're defining whether you're kind of snap scarce or not is whether you're in days 15 through 31 since you got your last snap payment. So like the second, you know, it's just like, it's a simple first half, second half chunk. And if you actually look at that a little more granularly, what they show is that it's a U-shaped curve where students are actually doing worst between like 10 days after they release their, receive their SNAP payment and 20 days. And then it, you know, then it improves a little bit. And what I'm wondering here is, I mean, for one thing, the splitting it in half at 15, where you're essentially getting one side of the U versus the other side of the U understate the difference between somebody who's like at the kind of snap trough and the snap peak. And the other question that I have is if the previous literature is showing that like the kind of crunch comes right before the next disbursement period, does this demonstrate that we're looking at something that isn't really about snap here, 
Or does this demonstrate that we're kind of missing something in terms of empirical behavior that like that more work needs to be done to demonstrate, you know, that maybe it's not the consumption patterns are different in the five in days like 25 through 30. Maybe the consumption pattern also follows a U curve. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. But I do think Obviously, like, it's a creditable finding. It makes sense that you're going to see, you know, some impact, not a huge impact, but certainly not like, not a totally nothing one. But, you know, I think that this kind of shows me that the tools we're using to look at the effects of this are maybe less granular and less empirically informed than they should be. And we should be like getting more data about like, what's the relationship between how people use benefits and outcomes rather than between just when whether they're eligible for benefits and where they are on the schedule. I mean, you know, one thing that I always think is that I I think the sort of current paradigm in, in academia places a lot of value on these sort of um, quasi-experimental studies that have a kind of plausible sounding causal story and sort of downweights um, just like documenting economic phenomena, right? Like, like what do SNAP recipients do with their benefits? Like where is the money spent and when and on what? And it's the kind of thing where, you know, also different social science disciplines like have funny names. Um, so I think people would consider what I'm saying there to be sociology or maybe anthropology. You're like following people around and, and writing down what they do. Uh, whereas this paper, which involves a, um, quasi-experimental design and hard math is economics. But like these are just sort of like questions about how the economy and or society works. And you know, I don't know that we that we totally know, right? I mean, if you look at this just as an economics issue, so much of it is going to depend on what you come to the table with. Right. Like if you are a libertarian who thinks that social welfare programs are bad and that poor people mostly struggle in things uh, because they're dumb or something, you know, you'll look at this, you'll say, like, this effect size is not that large. It's not obvious really how they specified it. You just have liberals who are kind of rummaging through, you know, the garage trying to find some kind of program to support their big government spending. And like, I don't care. Whereas if you say, oh, like we know so much from psychology about how hunger and food insecurity impacts people. Now we have like really good, super precise documentation of that in a way that the previous literature doesn't really let us quantify. And now we can show how this is such a barrier to upward mobility, how, you know, building a stronger social safety net is going to create all this opportunity for people and really unlock problems. And it's, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little flip, but like, it's, it's really too bad. Like there's a big debate happening now about different proposals to provide cash benefits to low-income parents. Um, and it makes a big, difference whether you think that just alleviating the bad conditions is going to lead to like great blossoming or not uh because you know you can say like well like why do you need a study to show it's good to like feed the poor uh, and you know you don't necessarily but it's a question of magnitudes right because there are impacts on incentives there are impacts on the tax code etc 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 but if you are as i believe like really blocking people from like living up to their full potential and taking advantage of things, they're too stressed. There are like huge benefits to making these investments. Uh, but a lot of people are 
obviously not persuaded of that. And I like I I wish this study had like so much persuasive power that I could I could like crush my enemies with it, but I'm skeptical. The thing about persuasive power though is that there's there's often kind of a two-step when you're getting really specific with your findings, because on the one hand, if you're talking about very, very broad phenomena, the attack you're setting yourself up for is we don't know that the causal story you're telling is really the thing, right? We don't know that mm-hmm. this is really that, you know, they're really being blocked from opportunity and it's not, you know, cultural factors or it's not, you know, that that the effect of benefits is actually hurting people smooth their consumption properly, that kind of thing. But the more specific and concrete you get and say, no, 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 no. We controlled for absolutely everything we could control for. And what we're finding is this particular thing really does depend on the thing we say it depends on. You're opening yourself up to get for people to get too specific in their responses, right? Like I'm reading through this paper going, oh, okay. You know, it seems like one intervention could be to make sure that kids are signing up for the SAT at like the right time of the, of the month. And like, that's not the, that's not obviously the argument that the paper's making. The argument that the paper's making isn't kids shouldn't be hungry when they take the SAT. It's kids shouldn't be hungry when they're learning. Um, but the more concrete you get, the more you do kind of open yourself up to this small bore effort to change things that actually, you know, something like that does exist already kind of in the real world, because one of the things the authors say about why this study is different is that if you are looking at, you know, statewide standardized tests, instead of like, you know, the SAT and ACT, you can create a phenomenon in which public schools will be more likely to, you know, expand free and reduced lunch programs in the weeks before the standardized test, because the better their students do on the standardized test, the more funding the school gets. And so instead treating college entrance exams where there isn't, you know, the school doesn't benefit if the students do particularly well or poorly means that you can, you remove the opportunity for the school to game the system by giving kids more food. Um, that's exactly the sort of, well, if the school already knows that students could be doing better academically, you know, is the, they're, they're, they're solving the problem of our, funding is being hurt by students being hungry. They're not solving the problem of students are being hurt by students being hungry. But, you know, in the absence of it, of the ability to change a broader debate, that's what you get. That's good. All right. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks. Um, well, no more thanks to Ella because she's already gone. But thanks again to Ella virtually. Um, thanks, Dara. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.